Okay, I <coughs> want to uh, make you aware of a book that I think is a, quite an amazing book. Uh, still, even though uh, it is, uh, it, ca it was published a few years ago. I think it was published in in 1981. Uh, this is the book by Peter Nichols called "The Pope's Divisions." Uh, Stalin once said, "How many divisions has the Pope?" And, uh, and he said it very, very disparagingly because he thought that there was a, that the coercive power or, or power, the configuration of power was the kind of configuration that could be measured in the type of divisions uh, that he was talking about. So Peter Nichols has written a very, uh, a very respectful and sympathetic take on the Roman Catholic Church in the uh, he uh, spent 20-plus years at the Vatican, uh, spent time with all kinds of people. So I recommend this book, The Pope's Divisions. Here is one thing he says. Ecclesiastical institutions tend to use a measure of time that is all their own. The cliché about the Vatican is that it thinks in centuries. I want to break and say, in contrast to what? in contrast to, to uh, projects, in contrast to institutions that think that have very short-term uh, spans, short-term sort of attention spans, you might say. Uh, one, one comparison could be, could be the state of, of the popularity of the, of the U.S. president, for example. When the gasoline price, this has been shown, when gasoline prices go up in the U.S., the popularity of the president goes down. When the price of gasoline goes down, go, goes down, the popularity of the president goes up. That's short-term stuff. Now, the, the Roman Catholic Church does not think that way because its popularity, too, might go up and down. Uh, but it thinks, for an institution that thinks in centuries, you have a completely different type of, 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 of uh, way, sort of different mechanism. You cannot just, you know, do things to, <coughs> to improve, improve your poll numbers short term. So the Vatican takes the view that it is going to be there for a very long time. <coughs> That's another thing because there is an institution. Some institutions have no plans of, of sort of making themselves superfluous. There is a there is a, a conspicuous absence of eschatology in, in some, some church institutions. And I have mentioned here, here in the Loma Linda setting that there is a risk even for our institution to, not, to lose, lose an eschatological pers perspective, to lose a sense of its own ending. Uh, and surely that is not not uh, uncommon. So uh, Peter Nichols says that, and I will return to Peter Nichols two weeks from now and, 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 do, uh, a, and draw heavily on one of the chapters in his book, uh, so uh, we will hear more from him. Now, <clears throat> you might say what we did last time, that what we're doing and what I wish to, to try out and, and, and propose here is that we are witnessing uh, certain th certain changes, certain what I call reacceptances, that that seems to me to be relevant to the 
cosmic conflict paradigm to the cosmic conflict story and to our study of the book of Revelation. Even though we are not directly relating these here, uh, I actually think that, that our historical trajectory and our, and our biblical interpretation trajectory, they need a little distance. Maybe one can bring them together, you know, but one has to have a little distance because there is a tendency uh, just to read then the book of Revelation for its history and not for its theology. So we tried as hard as we could to read it for its theology, uh, not, not wishing to say that there is no history on it. So re-acceptance number one is the re-acceptance of the church as state. And that, uh, uh, we did a little on that last time, and the person in the U.S. Who, that helped uh, in some ways to restore the prestige of the of a Roman uh, ecclesial system as a political entity, uh, nobody did more to do uh, to help that forward than than uh, President Ronald Reagan, and and now in retrospect we saw that that uh, Pope Pius the Ninth he was very upset about about surrendering the territories that that the papacy controlled in Italy in the 19th century. Very unhappy, extremely unhappy. And then what territory the church now has where it wields temporal authority is very small. But that is to the huge benefit of the Roman Catholic Church not to have a lot of territory. So how much territory does it have? It used to be a big territory. It used to be a, cons- a considerable part of Italy was under Roman Catholic uh, uh, control. And then it lost. So now it has a, t- a tiny, the Vatican City. How big is it? Uh, it is uh, just a few, few, I mean, you walk through it. If you drive by you and, close and, and blink, you will uh, miss it. It's very, very small. Now, what's the benefit of having a state that is a state, but it is very, a very small state? One, one, one benefit, of course, is that then you could con- concentrate on other things. You could concentrate on, on, on the world and ecclesiastical interests, you know, church affairs. Another benefit is that when you have such a small state, you and I have no idea how you would run a real state, you know, a real big state. I mean, the fact is that, I mean, uh, let's say that, uh, I mean, how, how long do the, the Pope as a head of state, how long does he, does he rule? You vote for him every four years, don't you? You don't vote for him every four years. So you have a lifetime appointment. You have, in some sense, a monarchical type of, of system. You know, that, that's it. Now, what other things could you say the benefit of not, I mean, what... What sort of thing would you have had if you had had a bigger, if, if now the papacy had ruled, uh, uh, let's say, a bigger part of Italy? Would it have had a free press? When it did rule, it didn't have a free press. It did not much believe in a free press. Would it, would it in its own territory have freedom of religion? It did not much believe in that when there was, you know, sort of terri- uh, territory. 
So uh, would it, what sort of economic system would it have? We have no idea of knowing that because what we have is such a small state that there is no test case. It doesn't provide enough of a state to be a test case for the kind of, of, of civic reality or political reality such a state would have. And my, my bias is to say that has been a huge benefit to the, the system because what sort of state would it have been? You know, that is, uh, so that was, uh, it's, uh, it ended up a much smaller state than the church wanted. But having a small state has actually many people inside the system too say that was great, that was our, that was, uh, that was our benefit. You have all the advantages and you do not have the disadvantages and it is likely to, that we could say that there would have been considerable disadvantages. That's, that's our kind of premise. But all the advantages, because you have the re- respect, the prestige, the sort of type of access that, any, uh, that you can have as a, as a head of state. What we're saying or, or revisiting that topic is just to say that there has been re-acceptance for the notion of the church as state. I doubt... I doubt that a James Madison and a, or, or, a, or a John Adams would have sent an ambassador to, to, to the Vatican. I doubt that. Certainly that opportunity was there at the time, uh, you know, earlier on. I just doubt that, that, that the freshness with which this country had made, you know, the freshness and the, and the sort of broad understanding of what a principle of separation of church and state means uh, would have made it, made it very unlikely that somebody like that uh, could, have, could have done it. Uh, and that would have been for, of course, at that time, uh, the, the state part of, 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 of uh, the Roman system was in, 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 a, in a state of, had low prestige. But but I think there were reasons of principle and not just reasons of, of, of policy or convenience that made that not happen. The U.S. Has, has increasingly had a theocratic understanding of itself that Christians in the U.S. at least tend to, to think more theocratically about its own country. And then one has been enabling the, uh, what you might call, the I'll just say that, the Roman Catholic Church as a state and there is also uh, the acceptance of the notion, and I'm not talking about Israel politically now as a, as a country, I'm talking about a religious reason, a relig- that, that, that the notion that God has a kingdom in this world, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of this world. So here is a kingdom of this world, here is a sort of kingdom of this world entity, and I'm going to, we're going to revisit that other, uh, that other topic a little we need to be careful not to make this as an anti-Catholic uh, argument because... No, the, I mean, that's, that's the way they set that up. Yeah. Yes, yes I, 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 I see that. The state of Massachusetts had a, wanted a state church, actually had a state church uh, early on. Uh, so there was no separation of church and state in some of the earliest states. The person who, who pushed that from the religious end in the U.S. was Roger Williams, and he was persecuted. He, he left for Rhode Island because he had been persecuted in Massachusetts. So there, is, you know, there, are, there are interesting things, uh, things here.
Now, the other, two re, uh, the other three uh, reacceptances I would like us to do here is today's topic, reacceptance of extreme economic inequities. That's, uh, that's today's topic. And then reacceptance of unaccountable authority next time. And two weeks from now, reacceptance of the mother. And you might wonder what I mean by that, but I will keep you in suspense for two weeks. <laughs> We quoted Bill Moyers last time, who was a student of the person who wrote the book on the First Amendment uh, uh, revolution within the revolution. And you all know Bill Moyers, and, and, and uh, he, sa- he talks about, uh, the, the, he proposes that you live in a time in this country where the delusional is no longer marginal. And uh, and uh, I uh, would like to support him on that one with a reference to to Benjamin Netanyahu's speech to Congress. It is quite unusual for a foreign head of state to get to speak to the parliamentarians in another in another country. It happens very rarely, but it has happened. This is the second time Netanyahu speaks to Congress. The politics of this is that there is that the current uh, government in Israel has more support for its policies in Congress than in the White House. There is always that tension because the White House is trying to think globally and the members of Congress are much less uh, inclined to do that and are much more vulnerable to local pressure in their constituencies and may also have other kinds of convictions. So going to Congress... And, and uh, everybody <laughs> agrees that, that, um, that Netanyahu understands American politics better than most Americans understand it. <clears throat> so here is what Gideon Levy wrote in, in the newspaper Haaretz the day after the speech. Gideon Levy is a, is a columnist. He has been a columnist in the newspaper Haaretz in Israel for many, many years. Uh, he and two, and an, there are two two uh, journalists there, uh, writers who have received many prizes for their commitment to 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 balanced views, to seeing the other side of the issue, and and in my, in my view, uh, these are <coughs> very very exceptional voices in, in, in our time. I have written to Gideon Levy once and invited him to Loma Linda just to to ex- show my own heretical tendencies uh, <coughs> uh, to, you know, full disclosure. Uh, I have uh, written to him and asked him if he would be willing to come to Loma Linda, and he has said, maybe. He wrote me back and said, maybe. He, ha- he has received many prizes for his, his coverage of, of issues. Here is what he wrote about, uh, about this speech. It was an address with no destination, filled with lies on top of lies and illusions heaped on illusions. Only rarely is a foreign head of state invited to speak before Congress. It's unlikely that any other has attempted to sell them such a pile of propaganda and prevarication, such hypocrisy and sanctimony as Benjamin Netanyahu did yesterday. This is an Israeli speaking. The fact that Congress rose to its feet multiple times to applaud him says more about the ignorance of its members than the quality of their guest's speech. An Israeli presence on the Jordan River, cheering. Jerusalem must remain the united capital of Israel. Applause. 
Did America's elected representatives know that they were cheering for the death of possibility? If America loved it, we're in big trouble. This is Gideon Levy. So, you know, 29 times the members of Congress rose to their feet uh, when, Neta when uh, Obama, at his latest last speech of the U uh, State of the Union uh, uh, presentation, he only got a standing ovation 25 times. You know, so I, I'm, I, I will say that 200 to 300 of the members of Congress probably did what they did because they have a theocratic understanding. They actually believe that there is a biblical reason, there is a biblical way of addressing this issue. They actually do believe sincerely that God has a kingdom in this world, and that kingdom in this world is Israel. Now, I am not making a political judgment here. I'm talking religion, because it is what people believe religiously that interests us. It is, the, it is the religious aspect that is interesting from a cosmic conflict perspective. And, and that's what, what, what we're, we're, we're commenting on here. Now, Israel Harald, who I have not invited here, <laughs> and, and you will probably never see Gideon Levy, so, so don't, don't create anxiety in our, <laughs> in our, in our community. The, the, these... Uh, other writers, they do actually come to the U.S. from time to time. Now, here is Israel Harel, because he thinks, he has a theocratic idea about Israel. He thinks that, that this is what God intended. The peak of the fury came when Netanyahu declared, to the sounds of the most prolonged applause registered during the entire speech, that the Jewish people has an ancestral right, a biblical right, to the land of its forefathers, and it is not an occupier in Judea and Samaria. And if Congress so sweepingly adopts the Jewish right to the land, where are all those Israelis coming from, like Gideon Levy and Amira Haas and others? Where are all those Israelis coming from who for years have been explaining to the world that this is occupied territory? You have to see that there is a theological, a, sort of bit, an un, a certain understanding of the Bible that lies behind that. And the Congress, the members of the U.S. Congress, are very much eager to embrace that idea and to applaud it. Someone, a rap artist in Israel who made a... I almost brought it here and wanted to show it to you, but, but I thought, well, that will... That will not work. So, but this rap, this rap artist made a, a, a parody on, on Gaddafi when, when uh, you know, to show, show the sort of, the sort of uh, inanity that the world has had to do, deal with, with, with the re regime of Gaddafi. And then he made a, a parody on, on Netanyahu's speech, you know, because he, he's obviously not too happy about what, there are many people in Israel who worry very deeply about the erosion of the rule of law in their own country, and, 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 and rightly so. So this person made a, a parody on Netanyahu's speech, where the people, uh, where he sort of puts it on fast forward, and the members of Congress, they go up and down like yo-yos. You really need to, need to look at it, because it, it, it was hilarious, but it was not appropriate for Sabbath, so we're not going to do to do it here. We, I'd like to give you one more point. Now, finally, 
the, this guy, this man, he was the president of the breakaway Serbian Republic in, in, in the former uh, uh, Bosnia. Bosnia, <laughs> yeah. So uh, Radovan Karadzic, he has been a prisoner at The Hague for uh, a f uh, three, four years now. Uh, and they finally caught him, Radko Mladic, who was the chief of genocide in, in Bosnia and has been the Christian and European bin Laden. Because that's what he had. He, he, uh, about 8,000 people in Srebrenica were massacred when, the, you know, right in front of UN peacekeeping soldiers. And, and he was the, the, the uh, architect for that. And, and it is not... It is not inappropriate to, to, to call him a sort of European Christian bin Laden. Christians have their bin Ladens too, by the way. And, and now he has been, been caught. It is the Christian view that interests us again. Because the head of the church, the head of the Serbian Orthodox Church in 1993 actually talked about these two people as, uh, as, a, uh, as uh, servants who spoke of the struggle as following the hard road of Christ. You see, there was broad church support because the notion of a Christian state is not just a Roman Catholic notion. And it is also very much uh, uh, embedded, it's deep in orthodoxy, that there is a kind of Christian state, a Christian sort of national identity. And that is what we're seeing a... a uh, that's what we're discussing here with respect to these other things. So this is a, another case in point, you might say. The texts for the topic today is the text first in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. It is a text when Jesus in, is in the synagogue in Nazareth on Sabbath, and he gets the scroll of Isaiah, and he gets up to read the scripture reading, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a text about the Jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and, attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We're doing economics now from here on. The rest of the time, we spent a little too much time on the, others, uh, on the other subject here. Uh, but there is an economic perspective to the Luke and Jesus, to Luke's Jesus. He is actually interested in the oppressed. He actually wants them to go free. There is a socioeconomic perspective in Luke's Jesus when he talks like this. The other text I'd like us to visit is this, the text in Revelation 18, 2 and 3. I will just read the last part of it. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich in an illegitimate sense in an illegitimate sense, at the expense of somebody else. That's the implication here. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. So there is a, a text in Luke, a text in Revelation, that seems to have interest in socioeconomic realities uh, that we, fits that we want to comment on in a cosmic conflict framework. 
I showed you this last time, and I'm, I edited a little. I just just uh, uh, sort of pruned it to, for for this statement that when the Christian state emerges in the early post-Constantinian times, in the fourth century, this is what A. 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 H. M. Jones, who has written extensively on the subject, says: "To the empire, the official change of religion made little difference." The old corruption and oppression of the masses by officials and landlords went unabated, and the last remnants of public spirit faded away. So, what does he say about the socio-economic uh, system of the, uh, as, uh, as far as the masses go? It did not really improve. In some ways, it even got worse because there had been, there had been. Figures like you have today, like a Bill Gates, like a Warren Buffett, who put a lot of money into public, you know, public service projects. Those there were Romans in Roman times. There were people like that who put, who gave a lot of money to public service. How many of you have walked on Via Appia Antica, on the old Appian Way in Rome? You have been on the old Appian Way. Did you know who built it? How did they build it? Somebody donated it. A very wealthy Roman. This amazing road that runs all the way from Rome to Brindisi. That way, that road was donated. It was a private, a private gift to the state by a, some someone with what uh, Jones here would call public spirit. A public spirited uh, Roman did that. So. Uh, now, we move to fast forward, really big time fast forward. And this is something I have also shared with you when we did Revelation. But <clears throat> this is Christian imperial economics at the time when the French monar monarchy is at its zenith, when there is French monarchical power and there is an extremely close relationship between monarchical power and the church. Because the the head, uh, the uh, chief executive, or the the first minister, what you might call the prime minister at that time, was a French Italian cardinal. Here is what Lord Acton says: French historians believe that in a single generation, during the time of Louis, Louis the Fourteenth, in a single generation, six millions millions of people died of want; they starved to death. It would be easy to find tyrants more violent more malignant, more odious than Louis XIV. But there was not one who ever used his power to inflict greater suffering or greater wrong. And the admiration with which he inspired the most illustrious men of his time denotes the lowest depth to which the turpitude of absolutism has ever degraded the conscience of Europe. The person who writes this was a Roman Catholic. He was the foremost Roman Catholic historian of the 19th century, Sir, Sir John Acton. And, and he, uh, 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 this is the person, just to repeat it, he is the person who says that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is your, your man. He didn't write very much, but he was a highly respected church historian of his day, and not... Uh, particularly proud of the of the of what the Roman Catholic uh, 
the church uh, did in terms of socioeconomic realities. So I hope I will ruin forever in this audience and whoever else ventures to Versailles. I hope I will ruin forever your ability to experience the gardens of Versailles as something other than an odious memory. You know, because that was built uh, on, uh, on the backs of very poor people in France, and six million people starved to death during the time when, when these gardens were, were, were laid out. You hear me? You hear what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say something here uh, to, to sort of raise our, 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 our sensibilities to uh, another way of, 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 of looking at what, what uh, the powers have been doing. Christian imperial economics. This is course 101. <clears throat> this is a basic, basic course on Christian imperial economics. Uh, cardinal Mazarin. He was the cardinal uh, who uh, used to work for uh, Louis the Fourteenth until his death. Louis the Fourteenth stayed around much longer than that. But when he was still a young young king. Mazarin was his uh, head minister, and these are claims I would wish to make on, on, on how this system was. It was insensitive and, and indifferent to the plight of the poor. It was preferential to the interests of the rich. It was sustained by ideals, interests, and policies held in common by church and state. There was absolutely no sort of you know, second-guessing these two entities, they worked together. They agreed on these things. They upheld a system, an economic system, that was extremely disadvantageous to the poor. And absolutism in those days meant that the king could point at you. He could put his finger on and say, you, I mean you. And, and you, they would chop off your head right away. You know, and the threshold for chopping off people's heads in those days was extremely low, because it wasn't much. It wasn't much you needed to do wrong to have your, your head chopped off. You know, so again, this is Christian imperial economics 101. Here is a change. Here is something different. Uh, now we are going on fast forward again to uh, uh, nine, uh, to 1893. There is a papal encyclical in 1893 issued by Pope Leo XIII who followed, who was the successor of Pope Pius IX, who we talked about last time. Uh, so you might want to revisit your history books here. I'm uh, hoping that, that this will uh, stimulate us. We have a discussion in the School of Religion that we need more humanities in Loma Linda. And I'm, I'm trying to give my, my uh, two cents for the humanities uh, uh, role uh, at Loma Linda. Here is from his cyclical called Rerum Novarum. Hence, by degrees, it has come to pass that working men have been surrendered, isolated, and helpless to the hard-heartedness of employers and the greed of unchecked competition. To this must be added that the hiring of labor and the conduct of trade are concentrated in the hands of comparatively few, so that a small number of very rich men 
have been able to lay upon the teeming masses of laboring, of the laboring poor, a yoke little better than that of slavery itself. Now, let's just say that what he describes about the working class might not fit exactly what we see in our time. But would you say that some of the things he says there sounds, sounds eerily familiar? Concentration of ownership in the hands of very few, greed of unchecked competition, that there is a sort of greed factor in, 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 world, in the world economy. Would you say that that, that, is, uh, that, that sounds interesting uh, and, and so on? Now, uh, my question is, uh, why, why is he saying this? I mean, this is really nice. I mean, don't you feel, aren't you happy that somebody is finally saying something? These encyclicals like this type in 1893 was quite a new melody. It had, there is, you have to go centuries back. There was no such encyclical during the reign of Louis XIV. There was a lot of poverty. There were six million people starving to death. There was nothing, nobody said anything about the sort of illegitimacy of, 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 of oppressing the poor during those days. So my question is, why is he saying it now? And, and I do not want to imply that this man was insincere. He may very well have been sincere. You know, that, that, is, that is possible. Now, there is insincerity in, public, uh, in the public square. And there is some, some people say, pundits in the U.S. say that, that there are people who, have, who are converted on the road to Des Moines rather than on the road to Damascus. You know, that, that U.S. politicians have conversion experiences there, that they change their view because of whatever it takes to get elected in Des Moines. You know, I am not saying that what, he, what Leo XIII was saying in Rerum Novarum was a conversion on the road to Des Moines, but I am saying that it has a context. And here is the context. Why the change? Why, why the change other than sincerity? other than a new interest in the plight of the poor, which was not a novelty. The poor, the poor had been there, as, as, as we, we said. So, well, one reason is the rise of a revolutionary movements. One reason is that there now seems to be a convergence of factors where people will say, we have had enough. We have had enough. We have been disenfranchised long enough religiously by the powers, by the, by the nobility, by the monarchies, and by the church. We have simply had enough. So you have the French Revolution there, and then you have to our left, uh, to your left, you have Jeremy Bentham. You say a few words about <laughs> Kyle, remember Jeremy Bentham? <laughs> from medicine and ethics. We talk about uh, Jeremy Bentham in, in, in ethics. Uh, what is the uh, ethical theory that Jeremy Bentham is, is famous for in England? Jeremy Bentham is famous for the theory of utilitarianism. And utilitarianism says what? What the right deed, the good deed, is to do something that benefits the most people, you know, that it, isn't, that, that it is not an absolutist sort of morality. But Jeremy Bentham, he understood, 
he was not a particularly religious person, and the religious establishment felt threatened by Jeremy Bentham. But Jeremy Bentham understood that the system of power in, in his day was a patronage system. Patronage? How do you say it? Patronage? So patronage means what? What does, it, what is, what does a power structure of a patronage mean? It, it's, yes, it could be, it's, it's hierarchical. And, but it means that those who wield power, they mutually benefit each other, you know, to the exclusion of other, others. So it is in many ways an unaccountable power structure. So you, you will help me, and I will help you. You know, we help each other. We sort of, uh, you know, do things together. The system of power in a country like Syria today, just to use an example, is thoroughly a system of patronage. There is about two million people in the Syrian government who benefit from the current system and are quite reluctant to see it fall apart because there is a, a, a social contract or a contract between between the president and the, and the narrow circle and quite a few people who benefit, benefit from, from that system. That's what patronage means. Jeremy Bentham, he understood that there was patronage. And Lord Acton, in our book, he says that when the steely mind or steely logic of Jeremy Bentham understood that, there was, the world was due for change. You know, when he understood that people bought access and influence in other ways. Who is this? Well, there is Karl Marx. There is, you know, communism. There is, the, there is Marxist ideology. And Marxist ideology, what did Marx say to, uh, that distinguishes him from other philosophers? Marx said that the, the role of the philosopher is not to describe the world, but to change it. So there is, an, there is some honor. There, uh, Marxists do some honor for that because what he wishes to change is the condition of a disenfranchised working class. So you have the rise of the revolutionary movements, you have the industrial revolution, you have the emergence of a working class that now represents political power, represents a political interest. You cannot ignore it uh, as you have uh, in times past or up until uh, this time. Uh, and my question was, why, does, why do we have this encyclical in 1893? Well, we have it because the world is changing, in part, and because the church is finding itself to be on the wrong side of history. That would be, seem to me to be reasonable, context, uh, uh, you know, contextual aspects, and it doesn't mean that the person who issued this encyclical necessarily was insincere. See, I don't want to say that. You know, 40 years later, in, in 1993, the, Roman, uh, the, the Vatican revisited this encyclical and wrote another one that is, that, that is entitled 40 years ago, on the 40th anniversary of that other one, basically repeating many of the issues there on, on, on uh, awareness of the poor. Well, we'll do another uh, fast... fast this one I will skip because uh, we will not have enough time, but I just wish to, to uh, this is from uh, Georges Lefebvre and his, bo his books on the French Revolution, where he talks about the movement of colonization. Uh, 
where the Western, Western Europe or European nations go to the rest of the world and, and, uh, and impose themselves on the rest of the world and, and do uh, business there in a rather cruel way. Now, another fast forward. The ideological roots uh, of the European Union. The picture here is a picture of the two uh, of, of the two p uh, pioneers of the European Union. This interests me a lot more than it, than it interests you. It ought to interest you more than it interests most people in this, uh, at this time because it is a very fascinating project in constitutional thinking. This is Jean Monnet, who was the first head of the European uh, Commission, I think, or... Uh, 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 they, they shared offices. I can't exactly remember. Uh, but he is a more secular person. This is the ideological father of the European Union. You would, call, uh, you would uh, say Robert Schumann. That's his name. Have you ever heard of Robert Schumann? Robert Schumann. He is French. So both of these are French. And Robert Schumann was the ideological... Uh, he was the one who thought out the European Union. What was it that the European Union was supposed to achieve? Uh, the Treaty of Rome. Uh, it, on, initially, it was, a, it was called the Coal and Steel Union. What, what was the problem they, they wished to remedy? This was in 1950. Guess if you don't know. Guess if you don't know. We had been through two devastating wars in Europe. The First World War that ended only to set the stage, only to sort of lay the groundwork for the Second World War. And it was devastating. So Robert Schumann, he has a very noble reason for wanting to have a European unity. He wants to prevent another war. So he wants to say, we need to do something, we need to create institutions that will make the price tag for fighting, for killing each other and going to another war, we need to make that, you know, too, that that would be too big a price to pay. So that's what he is, he is uh, 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 you know, up to. And Robert Schumann is, um, is now being considered for sainthood. The, pro the work is in progress at the Vatican. Started in, it has been in the works for some time because he was a Christian and he was a Christian with some understanding of, of Roman Catholic social thinking, sort of the social conscience of Roman Catholicism. He knew uh, Thomas Aquinas. He could read Aquinas and he could read other pr people who had thought about constitutional issues in Catholicism. So... Uh, and it is not well known. This book, <coughs> I'm saving, saving up to buy it in the, <coughs> in the meantime. It's just been published, 2008, so I'm not, totally, not extremely far behind. But this book uh, on Robert, uh, Robert Schumann, uh, that should have one end there, there's a mistake. Uh, uh, Neo-Scholastic Humanism and the Unification of Europe, a book that has just been published and that I have just ordered on interlibrary loan. I haven't read it yet. But I have read some things about it, and I know some things from before about, about the Schumann. Uh, here is what the author of that book says. What is seldom appreciated is the remarkable degree to which Schumann's 
uh, actions were the conscious implementation of the neo-Thomistic project of Pope Leo XIII. Now, that's a mouthful. You really have to go back to school to figure that one out, you know, because neo-Thomistic means the ideology of Thomas Aquinas, who has been the foremost moral theologian in the Roman Catholic Church uh, to date. Aquinas, if I'm not mistaken, dies in 1274. So he is a Catholic thinker who follows closely on the heels of the papacy of Innocent III. He isn't during Innocent III. His dates overlap a little. I think his birth date is... is may, maybe not. I think maybe 1226. I can't remember. Uh, anyway... The papacy of, of Innocent III is the papacy when papal power is, in t when, when coercive papal power is at its zenith. It has some, something to do with it. You just need to know the, the context of the thinking of Aquinas. So this is what he, is, what he wishes to, to bring to bear on, on a European society to help us avoid more wars, which Again, it's certainly a noble project. The principal features of, Euro of, of the European community now uh, are like this. <clears throat> Number one is that, that it has envisioned a structure of economic integration that vastly exceeds the degree of political integration. Do you understand what that means? You, that you have economic institutions that are much more developed and much more integrated than political institutions. You have a mismatch between economics and, poli and politics. Do you, you, can you follow me? I mean, do you have that in the U.S.? You do not have that in the U.S. That would be anath anathema in the U.S. To, to do stuff. You might still have a privileging of economic interest in the U.S., but you do not have that for institutional reasons. So that's what, what uh, people in Europe will say, that there is a political deficit, there is a democracy deficit in the European Union, and there is no sort of foreseeable way to fix that at this stage. Because how would you fix it? If you integrate economically, let's say that you integrate economically with a central bank like you do in the U.S., then you have to integrate politically in a similar way. You have to make a United States of Europe. And the e European Union is not that. Even for the big countries, there is a political deficit. It is because there is no, there, there are not direct, the, the people who wield power at the top level in the EU are appointed. They are not elected. There is no sort of uh, rolling over, you know, with, with elections. There is a European Parliament that is elected, but it doesn't really have much say. It is the European Commission that has say. This is, again, stuff that you have to, to uh, you know, not do too much on. And now, there is a free market economy of sorts, and all I wish to say by that is that there is a prioritizing of, of, of economic aspects. That's the, that's the goal. And that was intended because you needed to make, you're kind of creating a slightly coercive mechanism for, cre for keeping unity. Do you understand? It was 
the divisions of the past, you need to overcome them. How do you do that? You tie them together. You bundle them on the level of economics. You cannot do it on the level of politics. There is too much invested still in European consciousness of nation states, you see. So now Norway is not a member of the, uh, of the EU, and, and a few countries aren't. Serbia, they arrested Ratko Mladic partly because they want to get into the EU. Because the EU says you are not going to, you're not going to be EU members until you, de- you give us Ratko Mladic at the door. And now they have done that, and they will be members of the EU before, uh, before very long. Now, one of the things, loss of national and local autonomy, there are all kinds of issues, because even though Norway is not a member of the EU, uh, the EU policy to, for Norway to participate in the trade, they have to abide by EU rules. So you have to, uh, we have a restrictive policy on alcohol. You cannot sell alcohol in stores, in ordinary stores in, in Europe, in, in Norway. You can only sell alcohol in, in uh, state-run liquor stores. And, and a community has to vote whether they want a state-run liquor store in their community. But there is supposed to be free competition in the EU. You're supposed to have a free market. Anyone who wishes to sell alcohol in, in any store in Norway is supposed to have access to that. You know. So you cannot, you cannot have local economy vis-a-vis such rules. And this gets us to, to the constitutional issue of the EU. The Treaty of European Union has established the principle of subsidiarity as the general rule. Now, if you had been extremely clever at extrapolating what I said last time, you would have understood what the principle of subsidiarity uh, means. But you cannot, I cannot expect you to be that clever. And I, so I will not, and I, I don't mean to offend you. Pope Innocent III, he said that he could interfere in all affairs of the, of, of, of the state, all, all temporal affairs, for reasons of ratione peccati, ratione peccati, that you are kind of a sort of super conscience for, for Europe, that for, for the world. You're kind of a super conscience for the world, so wherever sin is committed, you can, that's your business, that's what you do for a living, so you can interfere. Now, the principle of subsidiarity means that the Central European Union should not interfere normally, except when it feels like it. You know, <laughs> it means that you have the right to interfere. You have in this country, some, uh, you have federalism and you have states. You have federalism. There are certain things the federal government does and certain things that are, the states do. And there are certain things where the state, where the federal government cannot interfere in in the U.S., and this is a big issue, your states' rights and stuff like that. Well, there is no such thing in the European Union because the principle of subsidiarity is an old and, and battle-hardened principle 
of Roman Catholic thinking when it comes to governance. It is a relic of Innocent III and others preceding him, the principle of subsidiarity. All this is a mouthful, but I wish to get to America now. Uh, <coughs> two minutes. We're barely talking about America. Now, one of the Tea Party principles, one of the three Tea Party principles, and I just used the Tea Party as a, as a, as a foil. It has, it's, not, it's not interesting. I don't want to, 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 to treat it uh, uh, as a sort of big, big deal. Because this, has, this is just as a case in point. It has been going on for years. But this is what the free market people say. A free market is the economic consequence of personal liberty. The founders believed that personal and economic freedom were indi indivisible, and so do we. Uh, our current government's interference distorts the free market and inhibits the pursuit of individual and economic liberty. Therefore, we support a return to the free market principles on which, it, which this nation was founded and oppose government intervention in the operation of private business. I challenge you, and I challenge any Tea Party person to go to the founding fathers and see anything said about economic and private business the way the Tea Party assumes the Founding Fathers said. Now, the Founding Fathers were not, had not been actors in California. The Founding Fathers were profound constitutional thinkers, like James Madison or, or John Adams. And they had more important things to t think about than to say something. So uh, this is not a true reflection of what the Founding Fathers did. That's what I wish to say. I'm quoting here. I just wanted to, uh, to see this. Did any of you read uh, LA Times on Sunday? If you are not subscribing to LA Times or some other newspaper, maybe you don't want to read it, but you should pay for a subscription because you will be much poorer. We, you, we will be much poorer as a country if those newspapers go down. You know? And you can send your money to a newspaper you like more than LA Times just to help us have a press, you know, in, in the world. This is what Neil Gabler was saying in his article about a tendency in what is American Christian economics. And again, I appended the number 101 on it. It is insensitive and indifferent to the plight of the poor. He doesn't say it exactly that way. And I am just repeating that the U.S. socioeconomic scene is very much similar to the economic the Christian imperial economic structures that we have just seen up until and somewhat beyond the French Revolution. Insensitive and indifferent to the plight of the poor, preferential to the interests of the rich, sustained by ideals, interests, and policies held in common by church and state. Those are, 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 are assertions I wish to uh, to make. And then uh, we, uh, again, I do not want to have an a political discussion here. I just wish to, to, to tease out where do the Christians stand? Where, does the, where, what, where is the Christian commitment in all of this? And, and uh, this is <coughs> just one illustration I have of a, of a predatory societal system. Uh, can you bear with me uh, two more minutes? Two more minutes. A person born in the U.S. after the year 2000 has how high a risk of becoming a diabetic? The lifetime risk of a person born in the U.S. of becoming a diabetic is one in three. 
with your current population, it means that by 2060 or 2070, 100 million people will be diabetics. Are you going to say that they became diabetics because of individual choice? Are you going to make that an individual responsibility not to become a diabetic? Well, then you need to rebuke me because I tell my diabetics when I see diabetics over at the FMO that they have a cultural disease, a disease of culture, a disease in which we are all having a part. There is a policy reason for becoming a diabetic, and it's global. It's global uh, uh, because uh, all, the, all the countries in the world... I see you disagreeing, John. That's good, but I'm not going to let you talk. <laughs> The cosmic conflict and the future of America, taxation without representation was the issue at the Boston Tea Party. That is what you have today, taxation without representation, because the political system in the U.S. today treats moneyed interests like individuals, and that has just been approved by the Supreme Court. Reacceptance of a power structure or patronage. I challenge you, and I, I welcome that discussion, but it seems to me that is what we have again, a power system, political system of patronage. We have also gross ignorance of history and of the character of God. And that takes me to my final two slides. The Sabbatarian contribution to economic thinking is a radical way of rethinking uh, from where you see society uh, from another angle. The Sabbath pro uh, provides rest and dignity for the poor. And in its Old Testament configuration, these are people newly liberated from the centralized, preferential to the rich slave economy of Egypt. The sabbatical year has an ecological uh, sort of hook to it, rest for the land. And the jubilee uh, uh, creates structured, periodic socioeconomic resets to prevent an ever-growing gap between the rich and the poor because, as the Old Testament says it, the land is mine. You know, it's not capitalist. It's not communist. It is something other than capitalism, something other than communism. We don't have time to do that now. Here is George Adam Smith, not the Smith of, uh, of uh, laissez-faire Smith, but someone other than that. Uh, and as in every other relevant passage of the Old Testament, we have the interest of the Sabbath bound up in the same cause with the interest of the poor. The interests of the Sabbath are the interests of the poor. The enemies of the Sabbath are the enemies of the poor. Maybe there is a role for the Sabbath to play in the final sort of stages of the cosmic conflict, what sort of meaning will that Sabbath have? And what sort of meaning must it have to be able to play that kind of a role? I went over your time. I promise not to do it again. 